Okay, everybody, if everyone wants to get settled down, I am going to begin. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Okay. Okay, it's good. Okay. All right, so this morning we are going to begin chapter 13. So if you open your Bibles to chapter 13, actually, you know what? You can open your Bibles to chapter 12, because I'm actually going to spend, we're doing the first three verses of chapter 13, but I'm not going to get there to probably the last third of the message. So this is going to be quite a bit of a maybe review, and there's some stuff that I want to go through uh, in chapter 12 before we even get there. So, last week, Lenny finished off chapter 12. No, let me pray, actually. Let me pray real quick, and then we'll get started. Father, again, I thank you so much for this time. I thank you for the privilege, again, of being a mouthpiece for you. I thank you for your word, which is for us and to us, Father, which is a comfort to us, is a helper to us, Lord. Thank you for your spirit that gives us the ability to understand. As I say, week after week, Father, we could not do this. We could not know this. We could not do anything apart from you, Lord God. And we'll certainly touch on that today. So, Father, Father, I pray that you would keep our minds clear, free from distraction. And pray again that we would get out of the way so that you can have your way with us. So help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So last week, Pastor Len finished off chapter 12. And as we saw in that chapter, began a new area of thought concerning spiritual gifts or that which comes from the Spirit. And as the Corinthians did with so many things, they were getting it wrong, right? Because of their lack of maturity and just where they were spiritually. So Paul had to deal with this with this true church. Right? There was a lot of correction in this letter. So instead of blessing others and glorifying God as what spiritual gifts ought to do, they were doing the contrary as, as a whole. And it's not to say that every single individual in there was like this. I do believe that there were some mature individuals in the church at Corinth, but as a whole, they were not characterized by maturity. They were abusing the gifts, and oftentimes they were wrongly applying them. But it seems as if they were really obsessed with the show your gifts, and one in particular, that of the gift of tongues, which we'll get into more in chapter 14. And what I mean again by show your gifts are those that may stand out much more or maybe are in the spotlight. There are some gifts that are more behind the scenes, some that are more out there, maybe more noticeable, right? Some gifts are like this, and they are vital for the church's existence. But if not used in the right way, they can be a platform for the flesh, and that's never good for the flesh to be on display, right? That which is of the flesh and that which is of the spirit are quite contrary to one another. The flesh is always going to be self-centered, right? And anything that comes from the Spirit is going to be God-centered because the Spirit is God. And what is encapsulated in the term God-centered is doing things in order to bring edification to our siblings in Christ. And really, we can say anywhere we're at. Because as believers, those spiritual gifts is for the edification of the body. It is also 
to bring edification, I believe, to all people around us. In other words, we should demonstrate those same things wherever we are, being a light in this world. In the beginning, we saw that Paul did not want them to be ignorant of all that comes from the Spirit. After all, it is for God's people for the purpose of glorifying the very God who gave it to them. Right? But something was going very wrong and it was crucial for this church to get it right. So to start off this section, the past two weeks, me and Lenny did chapter 12. And the beginning part of this section, I brought four important things to the church's attention that I thought Paul was saying here. And we saw that it was absolutely crucial for us to know the subject of spiritual gifts. After all, everyone has at least one of them. Everyone in the church is equipped with at least one of them. And even though everyone doesn't have every gift, right, we still need to understand all the gifts. And we need to know that which is of God and that which is not of God. So we need to have an understanding of all the gifts, even though we don't have all the gifts individually. Secondly, we saw that we must know the source of spiritual gifts, which is clearly the triune God. And when we were in this section, we took a look at the diversity and unity within the Godhead and how they function as three distinct persons of the Godhead. Three distinct persons who are co-equal, right? And we did this in order to help us understand how the church is to function, being that we are His redeemed image bearers. We are different from the rest of the world. And then we saw that we must understand the specifics of spiritual gifts. That is, we took a look at the nine gifts that were mentioned, and we took a look at what they actually are and what they look like. And this was important, because if we don't, think, uh, if, if we, we don't want to think something is, a, is the fruit of a certain gift, when it clearly is not, right? Especially when we live in a time where believers still misuse and abuse the gifts, right? So we want to have an understanding of something. We want to know that this is the fruit of a certain gift. And then finally, we saw that one should never think they are superior over another because of whatever way we have been gifted by God. God is the one who is in control of how He gifts His people. And then last week, Pastor Len finished off the chapter and he expounded further concerning the unity and diversity of the gifts and ended off with reminding us of the sovereign God who is in complete control of them and how he gives the gifts to his people and to what magnitude he gives them. So I'm going to read off what Pastor Len left us last week at the end of his lesson. He said, unity is the result of being saved. And I like this. It's not automatic, right? We have the, we have the binding element of Christ in us and just like Paul had to learn how to be content. It wasn't something that just came automatic, right? We have to kind of work towards it, right? Then he said, God has made each one of us distinctive and dependent on one another, right? That principle of interdependency. We need each other because God has given things to each other that not everyone has. So we need each other in order for the church to function at its absolute best, okay? Just like the body. Right? And he said, God united diverse people together with Christ as their head and calls it the church. Again, we know that the church is the body of Christ. <clears throat> and all this 
Len said, is by God's sovereignty to display unity through diversity rather than uniformity. In other words, not everyone is the same exact thing, right? So now this morning, I have the privilege of starting one of what we would call the greatest chapters in the Bible on love. And it is, most of the time, when you think of the love chapter, chapter 13, it is used kind of like an isolated chapter. And it absolutely can be used as an isolated chapter. But we need to understand it in its proper context that it's placed right in the middle of chapter 12 and chapter 14 on the same exact issue. Right? So, love is a word that comes up so often in Scripture. But what does it actually mean and what does it look like? Many people, as you know, all you got to do is just look into the world, but this, this has even crept into the church as well. Many people have a false view of love and even a very selfish view of love. But the Bible teaches us what love actually is. And as the church, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are the recipients. We and we alone are the recipients of God's perfect love. God loves the world. He shows his love to the whole world. We call that common grace, right? He lets the sun shine on the just and the unjust, as the scripture says. He allows wicked people. He is good to wicked people. He, he lets them have a season of prosperity, Right? He doesn't just wipe them off the face of the earth, though their judgment is imminent. Right? But God is good to everyone, but only believers in Christ are recipients of His absolutely perfect love. For God demonstrates His own love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, not wanting, them, wanting Him, hating Him, right? Christ died for the ungodly. And this means that the very nature of, of love, The very nature of true love is selfless, sacrificial, benevolent, and kind, as the word agape means, which is that word love, right? So I want us to backtrack, like I said, just a bit to chapter 12. So if you turn to chapter 12, I'm going to begin in verse 27, but really the emphasis on verse 31, okay? Spend some time on verse 31. In verse 27 says, Now you are Christ's body talking to the whole church corporately, right? And individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. Are all not all are not pro- apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. So again, like I said, I want to draw our attention to verse 31. This verse has brought lots of confusion to many in the church and even some um, actually most of the greatest scholars and theologians. In other words, when you look at this verse and you look at many different commentaries of, 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 of godly seasoned men, way more seasoned than me, right? They scratch their head. They find this to be a very confusing, even as they try to understand the language, right? So, 
Let's look at what it says. Okay, so again, I believe that this is another difficult sentence to interpret. Paul has been reminding us that not everyone has the same gifts, right? He just went out of his way. Not everyone has the same gifts. And what every believer should desire is only that which God has given them in particular because it is for the edification and functioning of the body. That means there is not one of us here that should desire something that God has not given us. That we should only desire that which God wants us to have and that He has in fact given us. And because it is of God, it's going to be profitable. Not only for the person receiving it, but of course for others who absolutely need it. So we just spent 30 verses talking about the diversity of the gifts and how there should be unity in them. So why on earth would Paul say, earnestly desire the greater gifts when not everyone has the same gifts? That's what can be kind of puzzling in the language. So one might even ask the question, are there even greater gifts? So let's spend some time on this so we can be clear as we move on. And hopefully again, you guys can, I just trust God that God is going to make it clear. So though it comes second in order, I want to take a look at the word greater, which is the Greek word megas. Again, where we get that word megaphone from, right? Megas. And it means great, loud, or important. And because of chapter 14... We know that they prized the gift of tongues and they abused it. We also know that there were slight degrees of difference in regards to certain words in the Greek language. There were different forms of the same word. Because of these distinctions, it can be difficult to interpret. So the word for earnestly desire is the word zelu in the Greek. And it has two forms. One is in the indicative move, which I am not taking, by the way, and another is in the imperative move. So many of the best commentators believe that it is better rendered in the indicative move, not the way our English translations have it. And the word means, the word uh, earnestly desire, zelu, means to be jealous or zealous or to strive for. And whichever one it is, I believe they actually all work. If we take it in the indicative mood, I just want to get this out of the way. If we take it in the indicative mood, it would read more like this. You are earnestly desiring the greater gifts, but I'm going to show you a still more excellent way. And we know that there was chaos in the church because of the false use of tongues and among other things. So, that interprets does seem to be quite fitting to the context if it is right. And though that may make the interpretation a little easier, and though many of my personal favorite theologians take it this way, every Greek tool that I, that I have shows it in the imperative mood, just like our English translations have it. So I'm going to keep it this way. So I believe it is best taken in the imperative mood, which means we need to do some searching to get it right. Right? So... The reality is, the principle behind either of them are supported biblically. So where I stand as of now is this. The first thing I want to bring your attention is the word you in verse 27. The word you in verse 27 is plural. And it means that he is speaking to the church corporately and not individually. 
This means that, I'm sorry, and we see it again in verse 31, when he says, I will show you a still more excellent way. He's speaking to them corporately. In chapter 14, we're not there yet. In chapter 14, verse 1, should be on your sheets. It says, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. You, again, is plural. So this verse, I believe, to be helpful. He wants them, the church, collectively, corporately, to desire all the gifts, but especially that they may prophesy. In 1 Corinthians 14.5, says, Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. So here now, we see here that Paul is making a distinction between the importance of the gifts. So again, is he trying to confuse us? I don't think he's trying to confuse us. I think he's actually trying to bring clarity. So in order to have clarity, we need to make a distinction between existence, the word existence, and the word function. So I believe that greater, which is the word megas, means those gifts that are either showier, in the spotlight, or those that would be vital to the church's existence. In other words, there are certain things that are absolutely vital to the church's existence. In other words, the church needs the Word of God. And prophecy has to do with the Word of God. That is necessary, that is vital for the church's existence. So Paul wants them as a church, as a body, to have a great love and a great zeal for that which is from God. And he wants them to desire that which is most effective. And he wants them to be effective in their use of the gifts. Are you with me at all? He doesn't want the individuals in the church to seek gifts that have not been given to them. But rather, he wants them to operate in the gifts that have been given to them in the one way that he has designed it. And that one way is what? In love. Right? God has designed them to be operated in love. So that is what I believe the greater and more beneficial and more important, that is what is greater and more beneficial and important for the church. So concerning the question, are there greater gifts? I want to say the following, maybe for our help. Remember, God has called the church a body. He's used that analogy that the church is the body, right? So I'm going to ask you a question. What is the heart, brain, liver, kidney, skin, bones, and lungs? What are they? Huh? We have, come on, nurses, what are they? Ah, say it again, Rosalie. Vital organs, right? So they're vital organs. Now, there are around 78 different organs in the body, and all are important and vital for the body to work properly and function to its fullest potential, right? But not all are vital to the body's existence, right? Those things needed are vital for the existence. Now, there are many spiritual gifts, and all are important, and all are vital for the church's function, but not all carry the same weight, I would say. So corporately, 
They should desire those gifts that are vital to the church's existence and individually they should desire that which is specifically given to them for the church's function. Make sense? So so Paul rhetorically asked them if all have every gift there in verse 27. And at this point in the letter, he is assuming that they understood very clearly what he was saying concerning the gifts. And though they are wonderful and great and for a glorious purpose, there is in fact something greater that they all possess, every single individual, and that they all have the ability to do. And they possess it because it has been given to them just like all the gifts given to each individual. And this very something is not what we would call a spiritual gift, right? We would not normally call it a spiritual gift, and yet it is the greatest of all gifts, and is very much that which comes from God as well. And I believe it to be the very thing that ought to fuel our gifts when we operate in our gifts. And that we know again is the gift of love or the quality of love. We all possess that quality and we can love both God and both one another. We know that there are many different sins, right? There are many different sins and not every one of us commits the same sins, right? We all sin differently. It manifests itself differently in each individual. But there is something that is connected to every sin and something that fuels every sinful act. And what is that? What do we think? What word am I looking for? Huh? Desire. Well, maybe. Pride. Pride, right? Pride is connected to every sin. It is the, what fuels us, right? It, what motivates us to sin, the, the concept of self. Pride is what fuels the person to commit sinful acts. So I want us to recognize something by using the same logic, but kind of on the flip side. There are many spiritual gifts, right? And not everyone has the same ones. But there is something that ought to be connected to every single one of them, and that is the love of God who has given these gifts to us. And that love is what should fuel us using our gifts. And if it's not, something is absolutely not right. So if those gifts are going to be effective, they must be encapsulated with love That is, they must be exercised by the greater and greatest gift that every single believer has. And that is the gift of love or the quality of love. So I want to give you a quote from a movie by Wesley, but not John Wesley. Maybe you guys might know what this is. It says, this is true love. Do you think this happens every day? Does that sound familiar? It's from the greatest movie in the world. The Princess Bride. You guys all seen The Princess Bride? You know, in the beginning, you know, Wesley and the princess, I forgot her name, they fall in love, right? And he says, this is true love. Do you think this happens every day? Now, of course, he's not thinking true love in the biblical sense, right? But true love, salvific love, does not happen to every individual. We know that, right? Only to the church. But those that have received it, 
have it to the fullest measure. Every one of us have the love of God to the fullest measure. There is not one of us here that has an inkling more of God's love than the other. We have it to the fullest measure. And the one who demonstrated his perfect love towards us expects us to respond in this life with the same love that he has given us. That's what he demands of us. Now we may be saying, how on earth can we do this? We are not God. And that certainly is true. So let's look at some verses that will help us. Okay? So 1 John 4.19. Erica, can you read that? 1 John 4.19. We love because He first loved us. So we love right there implies that we can love, right? says we love, we're doing it, let's just say. But only because God first loved us. If He did not demonstrate that perfect love upon us, we would not be able to love, truly love, love God or love people. Then in John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, Olivia, can you please read that? John 13, verses 34 to 35. All right. So we see here that God commands us to love how? Just as He did, right? Just as He did. And this is the main thing that proves that we are His disciples, that we are true followers of Christ by how we love one another. But how again do we do this? Caleb, you want to read Romans 5, 5. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Who is given to us? I love this verse, right? How can we possibly love as God loves, but Romans 5, 5 says that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We have the Holy Spirit in the fullest measure. He resides in each and every one of us. And we can, not because of us, but because of Him who resides in us. Will we love exactly like God? We know we're not going to because we have this flesh attached to us. But we have the ability to show God's love through the Spirit's power. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we believe that the Holy Spirit is in fact within us? I know we're all going to say, yes, we know that. We know that the Holy Spirit is within us. Do we believe that He is co-equal and co-eternal and co-powerful to the Father and the Son? And that very God, that very person, is the one that is inside us. Do we believe that? Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Do we believe that if we walk in His power, as the Scripture says, we will demonstrate His fruit? Do we believe that? That we, a fallen sinful wretch who has a sinful flesh, do we believe that we can demonstrate the fruit of God? Well, we can if we walk by the Spirit's power. And again, do we believe that true love is only from the one who is love? 1 John 4.7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is 
from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So there are people who love truly, right? And those that do show that they are born of God. Do we believe again in the power of love? 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We know that's a big word. We love that word. We embrace that word as the church, right? We know that propitiation means satisfaction. It's talking about the absolute perfect sacrifice. But what I think is implied in propitiation is the word accomplishment. Accomplishment. What Christ accomplished on the cross was, in fact, immense, was it not? It led to an absolutely newly created being, which we can all witness that. And for most believers, for most believers, the beginning of that new life in Christ exists in their old world. In other words, most believers are not going to have the instance of like the thief on the cross where they get saved on their deathbed. Praise God that many Christians will get saved on their deathbed, right? But for most of the church, the beginning of that new life in Christ exists in this old world. And in the age to come, there is no maturing into a perfect person, right? We are already perfect in every way in and of ourselves, right? As a matter of fact, this is the only time in the Christian's eternal life, we already have and possess eternal life. This is the only time in the Christian's eternal life that we can actually grow is now in this life. And not only can we, not only can we, church, but we are commanded and called to grow. Ephesians 4.15 Ephesians 4.15 uh, Adam, can you read Ephesians 4.15? But to be the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects of Him, who is the head, even Christ. Amen. Amen. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him, who is the head, even Christ. So remember that Christ is the head of the church. The church is His body, and we've already said the body consists of parts, and every one of us are a part. And we already saw that each part has a different function. Alright? So Paul is going to begin his teaching on the more excellent way of love by using hyperbole and hypotheticals. And we don't want to miss this form of expression for the purpose of helping us in our understanding. That's how God chose to write His Word here, right? So He's going to give several examples of a loveless expression or exercising of the spiritual gifts. And the reality is, this is not how the gifts are to be operated. And it's not the intended result or effect of these gifts. So I want us to see three things that I believe God is trying to convey to us through the Apostle Paul as we look at these three verses, three distinct 
verses here. Right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 3 says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Alright, so let's take a look at this verse by verse. Verse 1, let's read it again. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So for this first hypothetical example of a loveless expression of the gifts, he goes to the gifts of, the gifts of tongues. Again, he's speaking again in hyperbole. And when I think of the gift of tongues, though I believe they are not for today, okay? But when I think of the gift of tongues, like every spiritual gift, what an amazing, an amazing thing. Can you imagine, first of all, just being back at Pentecost and that experience, or the three experiences that we see in Scripture, how amazing and awesome that is to be able to see the ability someone to speak in a language that they could, that did not know how to do it, and people being able to understand what is being said. What an awesome manifestation of the Spirit of God at work, right? So when I think of the gift of tongues, I think of the word eloquence, right? Eloquence, which is the quality of delivering a clear, strong message. In the three instances of speaking in tongues in the Bible, what was being said by the people was clearly understood, right? There was no confusion, it was understood. To bring, <clears throat> to bring the if part of this verse to life, he exaggerates by saying angels. And when, I, when an angel ever spoke to mankind, they always spoke in the language that the hearer could hear and understand. Angels have, we know, at the current moment, angels are higher than us, right? Though they are not higher in the big scheme of things, we are God's image bearers, right? Okay? We are the ones that are redeemed. Angels know nothing about redemption, right? A third of them that fell, they fell. But we also know right now, all the angels, the good angels, are perfect beings, right? They are perfect spiritual beings, and they, at the current moment, are higher than us. Angels have supernatural power given to them by God to do His bidding. So the first thing I want us to see in this first example of the loveless expression of gifts is number one, instead of eloquence leading to clarity, the result is inarticulacy leading to both confusion and annoyance. Now you can't fake love. Maybe some people can try it. But when someone is speaking to you, whatever the case may be, if someone does not love you, right, let's be honest, you just don't want to hear them. It's irritating. You know, I have here the peanuts. You've ever saw the, the Charlie Brown cartoons, right? 
There's only ever really kids in that. I don't think there's any adults ever in it, right? Joint time you see an adult is with the phone call rings or in the background, and what is the sound you always hear? Wow. Womp, 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 right? And the idea is kids, you know, our kids deal because kids are thick-headed. They don't listen. It's, they're annoyed by the authority, their parents, looking at the sinful nature, and that's what's being expressed. And that's kind of what he's saying here. A clashing trumpet, right? A, 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 what, what does it say here? I'm just crying. Where's the verse? A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal is irritating. It's annoying. So instead of thinking that you're being eloquent and doing this wonderful thing, all you're really doing, if it is not coming from a heart of love, true, pure love of God and love for the individual, is just irritation and aggravation and extreme annoyance. Right? Not exactly what the Spirit intended to happen. Then if we look at number two, verse two rather, it says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, he says, I am nothing. So now in this second verse, he mentions four other gifts. And as we saw, three out of the four are perfect. That is, the word all is before the gift. Well, number one, you'd be God but he's trying to exaggerate for emphasis. You can even say, as I'm looking at this, mysteries and knowledge can totally go and be linked to prophecy. This is absolutely perfect. Right? When we think of one who is a great preacher, right? Who has great knowledge and discernment and has great faith, there are probably many words that may come to our mind. But I think the word respectable is fitting, talking about this a little bit with Pastor John yesterday, respectable. We think of someone as worthy of respect that has these qualities, right? We all respect those who exemplify this, and we should, should we not? So Paul is saying, without love, you may think these things are worthy of respect, but again, the opposite is truly the reality. Those things done properly in love are in fact very worthy of respect. So number two, instead of doing these things in love, gaining respect and honor and proving that you are somebody, you lose and gain nothing, proving that you are unworthy, dishonorable, and in fact a nobody. That's what happens when the self gets in the way and things are not done by love. Remember that apart from Christ, we are nobody. The church can never forget that. Apart from Christ, we are nobody. Remember also that now that we are somebody in Christ, remember that we can do nothing apart from Him as well, even now as the church. John 15.5 says, I am the vine you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And we can never forget this as the church. We need God for everything that we do. We cannot do anything independent from him. We are dependent on him for everything. And moving on here to the last verse, verse 3. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor... 
And if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So now, this last example is that of one who dedicates his whole life to service. One who, we can say, demonstrates great mercy. And the word that stands out here is the word sacrifice. The act of giving up something highly valued for the sake of something else considered to have a greater value or claim. Now we would say this is good, a good thing, is it not? To be able to sacrifice. And one can ask, why would someone do such a thing if he didn't love? Using Paul's example. But that's again where I would go and I would present to you again the word pride. There's no limits to where pride will take you apart from God's restraining hand. Right? Pride leads us to be irrational and foolish. Right? It doesn't make sense. You're absolutely right. You don't gain much with those qualities, we would say, being irrational and foolish. So I believe the third thing here that Paul is trying to say is, number three, instead of lovingly sacrificing for the benefit and well-being of others and gaining the reward of pleasing the Father, you gain nothing and receive no reward. Yes, we know once saved, always saved, right? We believe that as the church. But I do not believe God will say to every believer, well done, my good and faithful servant. People think that if you're saved, you're going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Why? You didn't do anything. We did nothing to get saved. We did nothing to get there. He did it all. We are saved by grace apart from any works. But our rewards, on the other hand, are based on our faithfulness to the one who chose us and saved us. There is no true faithfulness apart from love. This is what God saved us for, to be lovers of Him and lovers of people, those who are lawful, not lawless. And our rewards are based on how we do this. So some verses, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8 to 10, says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's talking to the church. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We know all our sin is paid for. But we are going to give account for what we have done. There is going to be something called rewards. Romans 14.10 Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. There is judgment day for the just and the unjust. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. According to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident. 
for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. And I believe those rewards that we will get that are all to the glory of God anyway, are those things that we do when we operate in the gifts that He has given us, the way that God has called us to operate them, and that is in the love of God. Right? So conclusion here, God saved us for greatness and all for His glory. He saved loveless, selfish, and prideful people in order to make them loving, selfless, and humble. So again, what will you and I choose to be as the church? Right? So let me close again with Ephesians 2, 8, 8 to 10. For the popular ones are 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast... And then many times the church forgets verse 10. The very purpose of why He saved us. For we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. There is no good works if it is not rooted and grounded in love. Which God prepared. Who prepared it? God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in that. Amen? So... Let's do these things correctly. All right. It's that time, so let's close in a word of prayer and get ready for service. Father, again, I thank you so much for your word. Father, I pray that you will honor your word, especially where I may not get it right. I trust that your word is what is powerful, and I trust in the power of your spirit. Father, help us to be doers of your word. Help us, Lord God, to embrace the gifts that you have given us and not in others. Help us, Father, to be lovers of you and lovers of people. And most importantly, the people who we call brother and sister. So, Father, help us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.